We acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Turrbal and Yagara people, and their elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded and flood media is recorded on stolen land. The situation now is even worse. Flood is not about the poverty line. But for like me as a writer in the writing process, it's like still comes up a lot. Like you mean like your own self-scrutiny and self-doubt? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like when I'm actually physically writing, I have to try and write good sentences instead of bad oh, ones. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's um, <laughs> a constant struggle. So like, like it's a weird kind of relationship, I guess, where even though like I'm aware that other people are going to read it very differently to how I read it, um, I'm... And even though I'm my own harsh critic, I'm still um, criticizing in the process of writing. Like, I'm still having to criticize it as I write it, so I'm still end up. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, but to me, like, the interesting part is how much you even don't notice things on the first draft. Like, you come back mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, no, how could I have written that? That's mm-hmm. that's not good. Um, it's like, a di- yeah, your, your brain engages differently at different levels. Um, that's true, actually. But should we start talking yeah, about yeah, the book? Yeah. I don't know. I yeah, just started recording, so. <laughs> yeah. I noticed you started recording and was immediately like, oh, oh no. wait, this is being recorded now. And then, well, like, I can cut it out. <laughs> immediately, yeah. No, that's fine, actually. Yeah. I, I thought think it was very a good start. thematically relevant. Um, mm. But yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, we should talk about the book. Um, do you let's talk about the book. the book. Yeah, let's. Um, so, we're going to talk today on this kind of bonus book criticism podcast that we've decided to sporadically do um, about a book that we have both read, which I think must be a first, <laughs> like we a new about, book that we've both read. We thought about doing a book that neither of us had read, but we That's decided it. it wouldn't work. That ran it ran into some immediate problems. Yeah. Um, so we are talking today on the show about Lauren Euler's new novel, Fake Accounts, uh, which I think is probably one of the biggest, most hyped books that have come out recently. Um she, Lauren Euler, which I think we did mention her on our last show, is a critic, uh, an American critic who lives in Berlin and now a novelist herself. And um, she kind of made a name for herself in the, in the literary criticism world by um, writing these incredibly harsh, <laughs> um, very brutal, but I think fantastic and, and wonderfully honest reviews of, of books that are, um, shall we say, overhyped. Like I read an interview with her where she is like, look, you know, I don't really see uh, the value in taking down an unknown author. Like that just seems kind of cruel and um, sort of gratuitous. But my real problem is with books that where everyone um, thinks they're amazing and they're really just not. Um, and so she's kind of made a name for herself by writing reviews that point that out um, in, you know, very, I would say, um, intellectually uh, um, rigorous ways. Like she's not being critical for the sake of it. Um She's usually got a a good cultural angle, and uh, so now she's written her own novel. um, Which is very brave if you're mm, famous, if you've gotten famous as an extremely harsh critic of other people's work. I read read a tweet that was like, um, by a novelist who, uh, I don't think Lauren Euler has ever reviewed her books, um, but she was like, Oh, I went into, you know, I picked up this book and I thought, my God, like she's such an enormous bitch in her book reviews. This better be an amazing book. And, you know, I'm sorry to say that it really is an amazing book. <laughs> so, yeah, you're right. Like there, the bar is so much higher when you've um, spent years just tearing down other people's work. Uh, 
and so far, like I've been looking there, are, I can't remember what the site is, maybe, maybe literary hub where they, um, they sort of consolidate reviews of the books of, of all kind of big new releases. So you can see like what, you know, rave, um, rave reviews, positive, critical, and pan. And it's, it's like mostly been positive. Um, and I would say I read a couple of the pan reviews cause they're, I think always more fun to read. Um, and I think that people who panned it just didn't at all understand it. Uh, so, but, but I, I think it's quite innovative and an interesting book. So we're going to talk about that today. Mm. Should we um, go through the plot briefly? Or is there something, do you want to oh, I was just going to say, I went and read through the um, reviews on Goodreads, mm. which are not from... Oh, uh, I didn't read that. That's yeah, good. yeah. They were mixed. Um, mm. They were quite mixed, which I found interesting. There were some people well, who loved it, and there were a lot of people who just bounced off it very hard. I'm like, mm. this is really boring. Shut interesting, up. Interesting, because I thought, like, well, we'll get into it, but mm. um, I thought one of the things that you couldn't say about it was that it was boring, which is funny because she begins several sections by saying, I know this is boring. <laughs> mm. um, but so, so the premise of the book is that uh, it's, we have a young woman and an unnamed narrator, first person narrator. Um, she's a, a young, young woman, woman whose name is Oren Loyola. <laughs> no, it's yeah. So, but, but a lot of her, the details of her life kind of align with Lauren Euler's life. So, but I think that's on purpose, obviously. Yeah. Um, and uh, she's like working at a sort of Jezebel-esque um, women's website in New York. And then she has this boyfriend called Felix, um, who she met in Berlin, um, I don't know, like a couple of years ago. And then he moved to New York. And when the book opens, she's thinking about breaking up with him. And then he's like really secretive about um, his phone and his online activity. And he doesn't have any social media um, and he'll never let her like see what's on his phone. So one night when he's asleep, she hacks into his phone and finds out that he is a um, really, like, I don't know if famous is the right word, but he, he's a he's a right-wing, inst- like, right-wing conspiracy theorist on Instagram with, like, a ton of followers. And um, she knows, like, it, it's pretty clear from the outset that he, it's not that he actually believes these things. He's doing it as sort of a bit. Um, and he's got this, like, fake online life. Um, and then so she finds out about this and she's kind of like thinking about what to do. Like, should she tell him that she knows? Cause she, yeah, like I said, she already wants to break up with him and she's kind of just wondering like how she can use this information um, to like her best advantage. And while she's wondering about this, um, he dies suddenly in, I think it's a bike accident or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, he's, she's in DC, Washington DC for the women's march <laughs> and he's in upstate New York and she um, gets news that he's died. And so then she's kind of like, well, I don't really know what to do. Like everything seems to have kind of petered out really abruptly. And she decides that she'll move to Berlin, which is a city where they um, first met. Because uh, she comes into, I think his mom sends her a bit of money. Um, and she goes there and and that's like it. Like <laughs> one of the things that I liked about this book, I think there are several layers that you could read, several levels on which you could read it. But one of the funniest levels is just like a kind of, fuck you to the idea of what a book should be like because there's no plot um like what i've described here is just basically i don't know probably the first one third of the book is just setting it up and then she goes to berlin and you think okay she's going to meet somebody she's going to like fall into some interesting subculture or she's going to like make discoveries what she actually does is just create um a dating profile on 
what is it like okay cupid or something it's just okay cupid yeah yeah like the, the most basic dating site out there and she starts going on dates with guys and inventing a fake persona for herself on every date um and that's it that's literally it that's just how it goes on yeah. um so there's no like there's no hook um there's no plot there's no attempt to make the characters like realistic or develop them as people the reader cares about it's just, it's like kind of like if someone was just like what if i wrote a book that had absolutely nothing except a clever premise and like really really expertly good writing like the, then you know that's it <laughs> there's also there's no development of Mm-mm. the conspiracy theory angle either um yeah. we should by the way spoiler alert we should just put that in the show description i guess um oh yeah they, yeah, yeah we'll do we'll discuss the spoilers yeah yeah because it is it's one well, of those really things, only one spoiler <laughs> yeah it's one of those things like i read it and like um you come to Felix's death and it's very understated and it's just like, duh, 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 and then at the end of the sentence, Felix died. And I'm like, mm. um, immediately I'm, I'm like, oh, okay, that's what the book is actually about. I see what we're doing. Um, but then we don't find out really anything more about uh, who Felix is or why he had a secret um, conspiracy theory Instagram profile or like no. really what actually made this guy tick at all. Um, which is one of the things that the uh, the negative good read reviewers were like, what? Um, we're just yeah. like, no, I wanted to know what was happening with that. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, but she really does just like go to Berlin and you get a lot of detail about like the very banal details of just like finding a flat mm. and arranging health insurance and like getting a visa. And also um, being on online, like a, mm. a, she's, once she gets to Berlin, she spends a lot of time online. And one of the things I found interesting or original about the book is that um a lot of times a book if it if it wants to engage with this thing of like you know being online or what it's like to live a lot of your life online it'll try to do it in form rather than content so it'll try to mimic the start you know the feeling of being on twitter and and she kind of has a lot to say about the fragmentary narrative trend in literature where everything's written you know the story is written in, in short bursts um and she kind of like plays with that structure for a while um and then she says uh i think the quote is why would i want to make my book like twitter if i wanted a book that resembled twitter i wouldn't write a book i would just spend even more time on twitter and so what she does in the book like when she comes to this point where she spends tons of time online is she just describes it like in exhaustive detail like one page long section of you know then i looked at this you know i clicked on the comments and then i looked at this profile and then i clicked back to the comments and like on and on and on so like really going into the yeah the banal details yeah yeah it's really like um i'm trying to remember the passage but it's just like i watched a person with 15 followers try to dunk on a person with 500 followers and get ignored i watched a person with 3,000 followers um get into a prolonged stupid argument with a person with 40,000 followers i watched this extremely dumb and predictable subtweeting drama play out. I'm going to keep describing this. Gee, I'm just going to rat up my whole evening on Twitter. That's what I'm doing. Um, and she says, like, as I said, she keeps going like to, she, the book has a lot of fourth wall breaks and she'll be like, to be clear, I know this is really boring. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's like, so what is this book actually about? Right? Like it's a book, it's a book in which not a lot happens. It's definitely a book that, is trying to be about being online um and it's called fake accounts it's like a lot of the substance of the book is just her lying to people so like her moving to berlin a city where she knows nobody um 
and then just going on dates with various random dudes who she meets. Um, most of whom are not that well developed in their own right, and then just spilling out elaborate but like plausibly boring lies about herself. Like she tells one guy she's an acupuncturist, and she, I think, tells one guy she's really into astrology. Um, no, she well, she beca- she starts to set up personalities for herself based yeah, on right, yeah. um, the astrological signs. <laughs> um, but she also she lies as well to like she makes up fake personalities and fake um, backstories for like her flatmate and also like the woman she she gets a job which sounds like we can discuss more like the version of life that's of that's portrayed as kind of um, the life you can live in Berlin, but. Like at one point she says no one ever really seems to work. And so she gets a job for like four hours a day in the morning. She has to walk babies. Um, like she, this woman has twin babies. Then they need to be taken out and just like walked around the city. And that's her job, um, which is just seems like an incredibly um, fake job, but it apparently exists in this kind of, um, this sort of alter reality that is Berlin. And so she and she makes up a, a fake backstory um, about being an accountant and tells her employer that's what she is. And again, like you expect, like in a more sort of conventional plot structure, these lies would come kind of toppling down at some point. Like she and and it's, it it starts to look like it might do that, but then it just doesn't. <laughs> like none of the fake accounts ever. Um, it doesn't matter anyway. Like she just continues to lie, um, and there's yeah, she just gets away with it. Yeah, it's um, I don't know. So, I mean, I feel like I had a lot of thoughts about thoughts about this book. Do you want to start by just saying like, what's your review of this book, Joe? What did you reckon? How many I stars? I really liked it. Yeah. Um. Look, I mean, I I, I went in like because I, I love her book reviews so much. Um. I was like already reading it with a sympathetic ear. Um. If that no, reading it with sympathetic eyes. Anyway. Um. And she was, I, I think she was trying to do something, like she had a high, sort of, it, it's kind of is a high concept book in a way, even though it doesn't um, have much to do with like, yeah, like I said, any type of conventional, um, you know, plot structure or characters or anything like that. It achie- achieves what it sets out to do. Uh, and I think a lot of, yeah, like I said before, a lot of the negative reviews are from people who expect something that she is not trying to do. Uh and I also think, like I said before, um, the fact that she, she's from start to finish, it's really well written. Like there isn't a single word out of place. And to me, that's just such a treat because I, you know, I won't rant on about this. I ranted on about this enough at our last podcast, but it really feels like a, a lot of books these days are not very well written on a technical level. And it that almost seems to be an afterthought. Yeah, I think she's a she's a fantastic writer and technically like at the top of her game. So yeah, I look. I thought it was great. Um, what did you think? Well, so this book didn't really click for me until I started reading it all in the voice of Patrick Bateman from American Psycho, which I, I realised this about halfway through. I got very frustrated with it at first. There's some, um, like one of the things she'll do stylistically is she'll have these like long paragraphs. The paragraphs are very long in general, um, and they'll be like long paragraphs just describing the things that like the reader already knows like a there's one early on where he just tells you what an iphone looks like mm-hmm. and just like lists every icon on the iphone or she just like tells you in great detail about like her day on twitter or i think my favorite example is a part later in the book where she's at a german visa office 
and there's a sign that lists every country in the world in alphabetical order in German yeah. and she just does like lists all of those countries yeah. like she just says I stood under the sign for Egypt Andorra the Blesser Antilles and just like goes on just lists every country yeah. um and so at first I was like why are you doing that what's that about um and then I it then it clicks for me and then I was like oh okay so this is like in American Psycho where Patrick Bateman like first horribly kills someone and then just gives you a completely a complete review of a Huey Lewis and the news album and like but like from start to finish and just covering like every song or it's like a lot of this book is just Patrick Bateman's speech where he's like just talks about every problem in the world and how important it is to solve all of these problems just like in order once and then like there were whole sections of the book I was just mentally reading in like Christian Bell's voice from the movie um and once I got that I think there's two two um things I was thinking about well there's two like literary predecessors which is um American Psycho and then uh, David Foster Wallace I was thinking about a lot because they both have they all have this very similar style which is like very dense and very like expanded and they're like it discovers something at great length and in quite technical language and like covering yeah, a lot of like edge cases um oh it's called hysterical realism um, yeah that sounds right yeah yeah so this is i was actually just reading a thing about this um the other day so it's a term coined in 2000 by english critic james wood to describe what he sees as a literary genre typified by a strong co contrast between elaborately absurd prose plotting or characterization on the one hand and careful detailed investigations of real specific social phenomena on the other so it's yeah like david foster wallace i think jonathan franzen and to a certain extent um zadie smith in white teeth also also do this like where they just go very much into into depth down the rabbit hole of one tiny little tendril of the plot or character or situation um and then come back to the main thing and yeah they keep doing that throughout the book mm. and yeah so once i'd like gotten once i'd figured out that that's what it's doing i guess i knew how to read it a lot better and so i like I kind of skimmed it at first and then like went back and read it um, more closely for this podcast and ended up liking it a lot more. But there's also, I think, it's a very similar experience to me like reading like um, American Psycho or like trying and failing to read Infinite Jest, which I've done a few times, um, which is like on the one hand just kind of getting mad at it. And I don't know, I suppose my emotional experience is being very like, look, I... I I kind of get it like I appreciate what you're doing and that you're doing it in like this level of detail and that you're like doing it very well but also like it's hard for me to not see it as a gimmick to some degree but also I think it's very much like a way that they've developed to explore a very particular kind of emotional space and kind of personality when there's probably no other way to explore that yeah because like, well, I haven't read American Psycho, actually, or seen the movie, so um, I don't, yeah, I can't comment on that specifically, yeah, yeah. but um, just in terms of the narrator's general, I guess, psychological state, like, we, you start off by thinking that, like, because she's, she's like, the, the narrative tone is very intimate and very kind of personable, and you kind of feel like you know this person, and she's, like, you're, you're sort of in her head, and you feel, I don't know, familiar with her. And then, like, you find out this about her boyfriend, that he's like this, he has this, you know, fake life online, and then he dies. And the kind of natural instinct in the reader is to be like, God, that sucks. Like, <laughs> I feel so sorry for you. Like, 
you know, that she's sort of the victim of, of these circumstances. But then as it goes on, you kind of start to think like, hang on a second, you are also insane. Like <laughs> you, uh, like the book is called Fake Accounts and, and you know, obviously his, his is one of the accounts that's fake. But then, you know, she's the one who's kind of making a life out of being a complete pathological liar um, and just making up personalities for herself. So you, you get the sense that, you know, if she was attracted to him, to Felix in the first place, it was probably because she sensed something in him that she also has. Um, so, which is to say that she's not a reliable narrator or stable or, um, you know, she, the book, at least, it definitely doesn't make any attempt to cast her in the sort of sympathetic victim role. Yeah, no, I found, I, I really liked her reaction to the death of Felix, actually, which is the most, like, she goes online and reads a bunch of blog posts about other people reacting to deaths and is very like has this consciousness of herself as she's like oh i know how i'm supposed to be reacting to death um i feel like i'm not doing it right i'm actually not as upset as i'm supposed to be because look ultimately i was going to break up with him anyway yeah yeah that's kind of the awkward thing where everyone's like oh you must be so sad and she's like oh yeah well at least i don't have to break up with him now (laughs) um (laughs) Um, and then, like, and she also uses that throughout the book as um, kind of a really convenient excuse, I guess, like about the whole like moving to Berlin thing, where she's just like, "Well, no one's going to question me doing this because my boyfriend just died, <laughs> mm. so I can do whatever I want." <laughs> yeah, yeah, and also like my dad died a few years ago, and like that's basically how it felt. Was like, look, I know how I'm supposed to feel about this, but also like. He was very sick. Um, Not a surprise. And also, I I can kind of do what I want. Like, no one's going to get mad at me. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) If I just say, well, my dad's dead. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's Mm. that, like, there's social expectations of you, but then then there's also, like, a lack of expectations. So there's, like, a whole void you can sort of step into, which I think she does by moving to Berlin. And then I think in, like, in the... In a more conventional book, that relationship with Felix, like his untimely death, and and the fact, like throughout the text, she kind of hints a few times that maybe she does have feelings about it, like maybe she was more attached to him than we than she's willing to admit, and maybe she's like actually secretly sadder about him dying than than she will tell us, and yeah, like I think in another book that would have been the sort of quote unquote emotional core of the novel. Um, where like at a certain point she'll you know come to terms with her feelings and even um later on like towards the end of the book there's a big storm like that's the um the sort of motif um i would say there's this big storm coming and everyone's like oh my god get ready for the big storm there's going to be a huge storm hitting berlin um but then the storm hits and like nothing happens with that like that's not in the end consequential and then like the big plot twist at the end of the book um which as i said we're going to spoil now is that felix is not actually dead <laughs> like he faked his own death <laughs> and as a sort of a, as a kind of bit and then he comes back from the dead and then like they run into each other in berlin and they're just like both complete like dead-eyed psychos to each other um and there's like no emotional resolution there whatsoever which you know i did appreciate that she kind of like teased us with this and then completely turned it on its head <laughs> yeah she mostly um Emotional reaction to it, as she says, is just she feels like she's been pranked. Mm. Like, more she just feels humiliated, like she's been owned, but she's not, mm. like, 
that's kind of it. It's just like, oh, I lost some kind of game that we were playing. Mm. Um, which comes up a bit, I think. She talks about, like, it's probably not healthy that I imagine all these relationships I'm going to have. It's just like games, and I just wonder who would win all the time. Well, there's a whole, like, one of the... There's kind of a Greek chorus of, of imagined ex-boyfriends she has where she, like, imagines what her ex-boyfriends are saying or thinking about anything that's happening, um, which is very much in line with that viewpoint that, yeah, she's kind of... She's trying to win some game that's mostly in her head, but that she sees relationships as being part of that game. But also, like, I was thinking about this afterwards with Felix. Is like, why does he actually do this whole faking his own death bit? Because I kind of realized after I'd read it, faking your own death, the only reason to do that is if you're already well-known enough that people care, mm. which Felix yeah. is not. I did. I found that a bit weird. Um that was one of the only parts of the book where I thought I could see her kind of trying a little bit and maybe failing is, is the part where he comes back from the dead and she finds out, a bit, out about it from a friend and then she looks it up online and there's like news articles about it. And I was like, well, why would it be in the news though? Because he's just a no one. <laughs> like that's mm. it's, it's not really newsworthy. Um, it would be like newsworthy in your personal like social circle, but it wouldn't make the actual news. Um and I don't really know, like, yeah, why he did it. I think look, it seems that he probably found out that she, that he knew that she knew about his fake Instagram right-wing conspiracy stuff. And rather than, like, have that conversation, or rather than, like, let her own him by, you know, having that over him, he was like, okay, I'm going to own you by faking my own death. <laughs> yeah, like, it's kind of implied as well that he does it just in order to drum up followers for his... Um other instagram like his like he's like an artist a failed artist though we never find out what his art actually is um and there's like what he seemed to get out of it is just like another five thousand followers for his instagram account and there's like one like clickback one like clickbait article which i thought maybe that's just like written by someone who knows him or something i almost thought there was a level in which i'm like it kind of feels like he does that just because that's the kind of thing that people do in books like this. Yeah, I can see. Look, like I, I do. I did like this book, but I can also really see how people would get frustrated with it, because it's just layers upon layers of meaninglessness. <laughs> and and you, as the reader, you are can like continually searching for some meaning, and it continually elides you. And she does that on purpose. And then like you get to the end, you're like, there's going to be this final meaning, and then it's like one more layer of meaninglessness. Like someone fakes his own death for no real reason. Um, I can I can certainly see that critique. Um, I think that's, you know, that's that's a reasonable one as well. Yeah, like I, I suppose one of the, the thing I kept thinking about the central character, who, um, yeah, frustratingly has no name, um, Mrs. X, is she's, uh, like, she kind of goes through life, like, seeing other people and just the first question she asks is, like, how do I relate this to myself? So we don't get any. So we don't get any real sense of like Felix's interiority, like, no. or no one's get, interiority. Yeah, like exactly. All the other characters are just sort of useful idiots who are there to, for yeah. her to like, you know, um, satirize or like, you know, they, they're a foil to her personality or like, yeah, yeah. Is, she's certainly the only person in the book. Well, there's a kind of level of shallow contempt throughout it where she meets all these people who are like. There's a lot of characters who are like nice and well-meaning and probably happier than she is, who she meets and has this like shallow contempt for when she's like, 
oh, I feel like I'm smarter than you. And like, look, I probably am smarter than you because I like, I like know what's really going on. And like, I'm like more meta than you are. But also I kind of wish I was you because you don't have all these life problems that I have. Yeah, um, and there's I think there's there's one encounter I can think of where she almost kind of cuts through that a bit. Like she meets a guy not online. <laughs> um, I think just runs into him in a bar or something, and then he's like takes her out for a drink, and then she actually likes him, or they seem to like each other. And then he's like, oh, "I'm going to go to the bathroom. Then when I get back, I'll ask if you if you want to come home with me." And then while he's in the bathroom, she just like leaves. <laughs> um, so she's like, in a way, completely incapable of having a non-ironic or non-contemptuous interaction with another human being or with the world. Um, I read a I read a review in the New York Times, I think, yeah, uh, by Katie Kitamura. Yeah, so she reviews this book and she, one of the quotes, um, which I thought was quite good, is she says, irony provides no protection from the unease. So this is like, you know, the mood of the book is, is really one of unease. Irony pr- provides no protection from the unease, but is in fact a source of it. Like, as you keep going, you're like, oh yeah, you. The irony itself is is kind of a is is disquieting. Yeah, it's like a, I guess a theory of mine is that this attitude. It, I think it's very easy to have this attitude to life, where like mm. you only have access to your own interiority, and then a lot of this book's about authenticity, which is another really like mm. David Foster Wallace theme, which is why I kept thinking about him. Um, well, is it we, about authenticity? Because I would say like there is. It, it's kind of the opposite of that. Like there is no authenticity anywhere. Oh, exactly. Yeah. 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 But it's like so much of what um, the protagonist feels herself to be lacking is a sense of authenticity. And I think she goes around like projecting that onto other people and being like, oh, like maybe this guy's like more real in some abstract sense than I am. Um, that's also, I think, well, that's the role Berlin serves in the book as well is Berlin is like, if you're in New York and you have um, a shallow media job and um, you're meeting all these fake people and you feel like you're surrounded by falseness and then you're like, okay, I'll go to Berlin where they have like, I don't know, where like Europe's more real in some sense. You go to like grungy bars and like um, kind of raves in factories and things. See, I would say that like maybe think even thinking about it now as you're talking, like maybe the only point in the book that I can think of where there is maybe a slight step away from ironing and a slight bit of authenticity or genuine feeling is when she's describing Berlin. Like she actually seems to care much more about the city than about any person or even like, you know, her own relationships or, or selfhood. Like she, there's a scene where she is like um, online and she's been online pretty much all day and she's just kind of doom scrolling on Twitter. And then she realizes there's a movie on somewhere like that night and she wants to go see it so she gets on her bike and starts riding through Berlin and like the description of the city is actually really rich and quite beautiful and and um I would say like much more emotionally rich than anything else in the novel um so I think yeah my view of the city was is is that it's the one thing she does seem to care about a little bit in that's non in yeah. non-psycho way <laughs> I wonder if that's like the actual Lauren Euler coming through I think it like, is because yeah I've read interviews with her where she speaks like quite lovingly about Berlin um and how much better it is than New York <laughs> yeah like because on the one level it's like going to Berlin and kind of there's a lot about being an American from New York and then like um going into this backpacker scene and meeting people from all around the world and like wanting those people to be in some way more authentic than you are but then also like that's just not being a real thing because actually 
Berlin's just another city. Um, it's not like, you know, it's not some kind of like magical place that resolves your problems for you. But there is like once I thought, once you think you've accepted about that about anywhere that you happen to be, it becomes easier to appreciate it. And I did think like I have been to Berlin a long time ago. Um, I went with my mum though, and like, so I didn't. I feel like I didn't fully appreciate it because I feel like to fully appreciate Berlin, you have to do a lot more drugs than I did. Go to the funky beats factories. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like possibly know people there and stuff. Um, yeah. Like I did. Definitely kind of wander around Berlin a bit and was like, gee, I was told this was the coolest city in the world. And it, in fact, is very normal and like... Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't been. And, and when I went to Europe a couple of years ago, I actually deliberately decided not to go because I was like, there's no way it could live up to like all yeah, of doesn't. the hype. <laughs> yeah. It does not. <laughs> so now now I, feel, I feel good. Because you're the first person who said that to me. Like everyone else I've said I... that to has been like, no, Berlin's great. You have to go. Look, I've probably missed all the good bits. Right? Yeah, like, I, I mean, would, if yeah, if you honest, have access like, uh, to drugs, you'll probably be, you know, you'll have a good yeah. time. But then that's true of anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I think if you go and like you either like know people or you um, live there or you find the actual interesting parts of the city there's like there were bits that i came across that was like okay i can see what they're doing here like oh cool this is industrial um but like i i mean i did connect with it the book as well and having that sense of like like i've been to all those areas that she talks about like new cold new and um Krautsburg, I think. Um, yeah, and like being not that impressed by them, but I also definitely could see like what you do find appealing about the city. Yeah, well, like I said, like it's um that's maybe the the only part where she shows any emotional vulnerability, so that's why it sticks out in my mind. Um, did you have any other thoughts? Well, I was just th- like, and I was thinking about this question of authenticity. Like, it's and maybe it's just like a thing that I think about a lot is that authenticity doesn't actually exist and like one of the biggest traps you can fall into in your life is like trying to find it and in fact like the like the mental process that the um, like protagonist just spends the whole book in which is this kind of like constant state of self-doubt and like not just living in the moment like endlessly kind of reflecting on her own thoughts and feelings and like Mm -hmm never fully um like immersing herself in the world you know it's like this is like glass pane between her and the world a lot of the time yeah which is interesting like just thinking about i mean because i think obviously a lot of the book has to do with social media and she spends a lot of time online and and you know it's it's kind of a a motif or, or a lens through which to write about these particular states and 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 actions but I also think in a way it's a little bit of a red herring. Like it is just about, yeah, definitely, of, yeah. it's, a, it's about a pathological liar. Like it's about an American psychotype and, and people have been psychos and liars since the beginning mm. of time. It's not Twitter that makes us that way. Yeah. Um, but what was I saying? Oh yeah. So, so social media, it, it's interesting because it has this kind of double, double meaning in a way, like, or, or double effect because you think on paper or on the face of it, it's like, oh, I'll just, I can I can be myself now in, in, in more ways. Like I can have this online self and persona that, you know, enables me to project my selfhood into the online world. But in fact, like so much about the internet, like it turns out to be the exact opposite. Um, you know, we perform a, a type of persona online that's often bears very little relation to like who we are, quote unquote, in real life, quote unquote. But then, you know, 
again, turning that again on its head, like who are we to say which one is, is authentic? <laughs> so she, I mean, she's playing with that. Yeah, like, um, I guess that's what I'm thinking is like, that kind of space that she's in is just a part of the human condition. And mm. it's not like something to be escaped from necessarily. Um, mm. And yeah, as well, yeah, I, th I think that's really true that people were like this, like this book isn't really about social media. That's kind of a red herring. Mm, um, yeah. I think it's about underemployment as much as anything else. <laughs> yeah. I found interesting just like, I kept thinking, okay, what are your finances? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like this person, like, you know, you, so she has a, like a fake um, media job in New York, just like uploading, updating a bad website. And then she moves to Berlin for six months and presumably doesn't worry that much about money. Well, she has, she walks the yeah. babies. And she so I think, the babies. I mean, this is like part of where the romanticization of Berlin comes in. And I'm not sure like how realistic this is really. Um, but it does seem like Berlin is, is functions as kind of magical land where you don't, you, you don't have to work. Like mm. everyone, she, she says at one point, like she, she's like, I'm not going to tell you what my rent was because it was so low. Like, I, I don't want you to hate me. Um, and then like all, all of her sort of, I wouldn't say friends, um, like her flatmate, all the people she knows in Berlin, like just sort of seem to work part time and drift along. And, you know, you can get a visa seemingly like fairly easily. Um, and so there is this, yeah, this dimension of unreality to it, which is, I don't, like I said, I would like to know if that's, if that's realistic. It's a good question, right? Like I know the, the Berlin rental market has become very tight in recent years, but then the I think the local leftist government passed a rent control act, um, which is actually super interesting, but also outside the scope of this podcast. And also I don't mm. understand it well enough. No, <laughs> same. Um, but it is very much like a, a hot button issue in Berlin is like the question of rent and living space. Because in a way it's like Berlin's become, as I understand it, a victim of its own success. Like everyone wants to go to Berlin the last place where it's possible to live this sort of artist and writer lifestyle um and so yeah there's it's now kind of overrun um especially by i think americans and i, I read a few years ago there's a trend of australians like melburnians in particular um going to berlin and setting up cafes and there was uh you know how there those stickers those i heart berlin stickers there were all these other stickers being printed um saying like australians go home berlin doesn't heart you <laughs> which to which i say like yeah, we should actually also talk about the reverse at some point, talk about the reverse exodus that's going on in Brisbane right now, where a lot of people from Melbourne and Sydney are, are trying to move back to the promised land. And um, Correctly understood that it's the best city in Australia. Brisbane's yeah, the new Berlin. That's like, it is. <laughs> yeah, Brisbane's the Berlin of Australia. It absolutely is. You heard it here first. Oh yeah, like the other thing I was going to, well, the thing I was thinking with that about how this book is not really about social media is that I went and looked at, um, David Foster Wallace's essay, it's called, just called, I've in fact got it here in front of me, and the name of it um, is E Universe Pluram, Television and US Fiction, which is an essay from the 90s where he just talks about the influence of television, right? And he says, like, like there's all this sort of talk in the book, like, oh, how much time am I spending on social media every day? How much am I glued to my phone? That's something that people on social media love to complain about in general is just like, uh, I've addicted to the hell site. Um, and like, it's this habit I can't break. Um, and then, then 
I kind of realized, like reading back over this essay, so the average American spends now four hours a day watching television. And that used to be like more. Like David really? Foster Wallace gives us six hours a day. God, in that the four 90s. hours seems like a lot. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. Like a really lot. <laughs> yeah. And like, that's what I kind of thought about was like, oh, okay. So being on social media and Twitter all day seems like a step up from just being like sitting Actively in front of consuming. broadcast TV, like not even yeah. on Netflix, just like glued to whatever's on, like watching the ad breaks, watching like some shitty game show for six hours a day. And I feel like like the way Wallace makes it sound is like that had a very similar effect on fiction to social media. And in fact, this is like a really a continuous thing. Um, he talks about like novelists and like uh, works of experimental fiction that were very um, people were talking about in the 90s and that nobody's ever heard of now, except in this one, es like people remember it from this one essay. Um, but he has kind of the same thing. It's like, oh yeah, like people are trying to um, chop up the novel and trying to like capture something of the sense of watching TV. And also they're writing about people watching people watching someone else, watching someone else, watching someone else, this kind of kind of metafictional element. He quotes some um, Don DeLillo. There's a, a piece in a Don DeLillo novel about um, the most photographed barn in America and people just show up to photograph it because it's so photographed. And he kind of talks about that and then he says, look, people are really trying to like capture this postmodern sense of TV, but you can't really do it because TV's already completely done that to itself has already completely internalized this critique and is also constantly making fun of itself. You can't actually escape this like sucking void that it creates. And so he goes over all of these like novels about TV in the 90s and he's like, yeah, like that's basically what they're doing. They're just kind of endlessly referring to themselves. And of course, then he writes Infinite Jest, which is about TV in some ways. And so this struck me as like, Fagy Counts, I think, is really working in the same tradition where it's like, um, kind of postmodern novel about media and about being addicted to media, but then also like that just being completely recursive. And then really, I think what it kind of does is just map out the, like I, but the one thing I, I think it ultimately does do well that like Foster Wallace also does well is just um, like dramatize what it feels like to be a person sort of caught up in that vortex. Yeah, that's right. And I think like almost everything it does is done on purpose. I think if you were to write a novel that you wanted to get a lot of attention and to kind of like tap into a zeitgeist, you would make it about social media. And I think that's why like she's done it. Um, it also occurred to me that like the narrator of this book, who is kind of a psycho who um, gets off on sort of tricking and hoodwinking other people, if she were to write a novel, which she actually is, it's referred to several times in the text that she's writing a novel or wants to write a novel, um, she would definitely write it about social media because she would want to have people reacting to it and thinking about it in a certain way. And I think maybe on that level, it is done a bit tongue in cheek. Um, but I think like the postmodernism and the big meaninglessness of it all. Um, yeah, like as we've been talking, I've started to think, I mean, I, like I said, I enjoyed it just because I thought it was really well written, but it certainly doesn't make you feel anything, um, nor does it try to. Uh, but there is, I don't know, irony can only take you so far, right? Like I, it, I think it certainly is not trying to um, do anything other than be ironic. Like I said, like I, w what it wants to do, it executes perfectly well. Um, but I, I don't know, like I think maybe literature 
it it can't just be all ironic or wry or sort of tongue in cheek winking at the camera like it, we are human beings with emotions and in some ways the arts are um one of the purposes of the arts is to is, is to evoke that so I, I i really liked it for what it was but i hope i wouldn't want all novels to be like this is what i'm trying to say <laughs> i wanted like now that she's got this one out of the way i kind of want to see yeah what else she could do because like i i don't think that lauren oiler is as like flat and affectless as the um i really hope not like the the protagonist of the book is um yeah dead-eyed psycho and i would be afraid to like meet her in real life so i'm gonna go ahead and say lauren oiler is probably like a more fully rounded person than her protagonist yeah yeah. and i i do reckon she plays it up as like well i mean obviously right like when you're writing one of like I think I came to appreciate the book more once I started to think of it less as like a like a reflection on real life and more just just like oh this is like one of this kind of novel almost as like a a genre like a technical piece. exercise yeah yeah technical exactly yes and once like I started to think of it in those terms um, I started to like it a lot more because then I was like okay no you're actually like um, like exaggerating this aspect of human life um in order to for dramatic effect yeah and i think she's doing that almost as a reaction to all the novels that she um really enjoys tearing down in her book reviews which often go so far off the other end of the spectrum like they're just like sentimental or they're you know trying too hard for an emotion that's ultimately fake um or that's manufactured or that's uh just you know doing the obvious really um and she because she's made her name tearing all that to shreds i wouldn't be like i obviously i'm speculating here but i wouldn't be surprised if she felt like yeah she she had to do a a big reaction and just do like the complete opposite of that um and do something that was completely emotionless in a way or and had like i said no no emotional core no conventional plotting or, or or any really of any of the trappings of a conventional book at all um but yeah that's a good point i it'll be interesting to see what what she does next if she feels like um yeah now she's kind of got this out of the way so to speak and and prove that you know she's a good writer because being a book critic i think is really hard especially when you haven't published a novel yourself people are always going to be like oh well you know <laughs> what could you do it better <laughs> yeah like it's it's almost kind of a parody of, of literary fiction like like a like this is a book that I read mostly because I knew about it from Twitter as well, which seems very appropriate. Um, and it's from like Lauren Oyer's being very immersed in this like kind of literary scene or like feminist blogging mm. um, kind of uh, like late 2010s environment. Um, and like, it's there's a level in which it's just like a, a parody of this world that she's immersed in, but also is not extracting herself from in any way. Mm, no, that's right. <laughs> yeah, mm. yeah. There's no, I mean, as leftists, I guess we have to come back around to this to the Jacobin point of this um, of this discussion where we're like, ah, well, the problem with this book is that it doesn't provide like a. a a uh, um, path forward for all for left wing organizing, um, yeah, which yeah, yeah. I you know I actually hate that about Jacobin. Like I, I remember agree, yes. reading um, a review of um, 
the Normal People TV series that came out last year, I think it was, which I would also like to. I don't think you've watched it, Matt. Um, no. I want to do. I want to do an episode on that because I actually didn't yeah. think it was that good. But anyway, um, we can do Normal People. I have read Normal People. Oh, you have read Normal People. Okay. Yeah. And you didn't, but you didn't watch the TV no. uh, series. No. Okay. Well, I thought the book was a lot better than the TV series. Mm. Um, but anyway, uh, there was a the piece in Jacobin about it, and it was like, yeah, and they were like, well, yeah, the problem is that you know this this isn't really like um, uh, this doesn't tell the left what you know where it should go, and it's like, well, no, it's it's just a TV show about horny teens. Um, <laughs> I think you're looking in the wrong places here. Uh, but I was going to make a point about this that I've now forgotten. Um, oh, that's right. So she doesn't try to extricate herself from that world at all. Um, and so there is, uh, yeah, a sense of unreality. Like if you're not that online, I don't think you'll enjoy the book that much. Like it'll be possibly a bit, um, inaccessible or like unrecognizable, like a lot of the behavior in there. Um, and I think, yeah, like that would be another critique again, like I'm not critiquing it on its terms cause I don't think it sets out to do this, but on the kind of broader terms, I guess, um, that I bring to the table when I read a book. Um, it, it doesn't have much, it's, it's very nihilistic. Yeah. Like I kind of want to say, cause I, like I am sick of biographical fiction or like pseudobiographical fiction. I kind of want to say to Lauren Oyler, like, okay, um, like, well done. You can tick that off the checklist. Here's your, like your, your next mission is to write something about someone who's as unlike you as possible. <laughs> like, okay, now you have to write something that's like, not like set in a city that you've never been featuring a person who doesn't know what the internet is. <laughs> like you have to write something set in ancient China, just okay. like as far removed from you as, as it is possible to get. And then like, let's see what happens with that. Well, I don't know. Like I'm, yeah. I'm not as strict with you on this thing. I think like if people can write yeah. good fiction, it doesn't, I don't, you know, care that much. Oh, like, honestly, like, if it's autofiction or not. Like, it's just but, like, I want to see what, what the different result you would get is. That's like, right. I, I yeah. want to push her a little bit beyond like the contours of like who she is in the online world and in the literary world means she could only ever have really have written this book as her debut novel. Um, and I kind of, yeah, I kind of want to push her beyond the, those, um, those outlines and see yeah what else there is in there <laughs> and it would be good like I don't know like I read this book because I like her work but if I had to be honest I'm kind of tired of reading books that are supposedly about online <laughs> like it doesn't it doesn't excite me that much I already spend a lot of time online um, <laughs> I would actually like to read books about people not being online <laughs> I think that my like take on this book was just that okay, we can have one of these books that are about being online. This is it. This is the one book I ever need to read about this. Like, well, we don't need another yeah. one. Well, like, it's funny because kind of it's just come out at the same time as another book by Patricia Lockwood, who um, you might know as the – she became famous. Um, she was, like, a, one of the first Twitter poets. Like, she started putting mm -hmm. poetry on Twitter. Um, I think she had a famous or viral poem called Rape Joke when back when poetry yeah. was not really a thing that was done online. Anyway, so she's just released a book in February, like pretty much exactly the same time as Fake Accounts, called No One Is Talking About This. And it's her debut novel. 
and it's about being on Twitter. So <laughs> it's like, mm. I don't know whether um, the publishing houses were just not talking to each other or like what confluence of factors led to these two books being released at the same time. But yeah, I read I read Fake Accounts and I was like, great, really enjoyed that. She's a good writer, appreciate what she's doing, have absolutely no intention of reading No One Is Talking About This because I, yeah, I just don't see the novelty in it. And I feel like we've, we, we as a culture are probably evolving beyond the need for these novels. I do think Lockwood is a very different writer from Euler. Like, oh, yeah? as I recall, she's like, um, kind of a funnier, well, funny in a different way. Like, Euler's being very dry and Lockwood's more like absurd and kind of punchy in a sense of humor. So I'll probably at least have a look at that. Um, and hopefully it will be very different, but like, yeah, I was like, I was thinking this is a book that someone could read like 50 years from now just to be like, oh, what was the general vibe of 2021? And this would give them a pretty good example. The other thing we probably haven't covered is just like the role that Donald Trump plays in this book. Yeah, that, see, that already feels dated to me. Yeah, <laughs> like, I know, right? Who the who's so... the fuck is Donald Trump? Is he on Twitter? Uh, no, he's I not. I miss him so Never much. I want him to come back. Did yeah. you see the statement that he put out today? It was amazing. I missed it. Okay, let me find it. I'll read it to you. Um, so you know, hey, because he's not on Twitter anymore, yeah. he, he just, just releases official his, statements. Yeah, official statements with the like the presidential seal on them. Yeah, it's it, it's it's from the the thing the seal at the top says "Save America, President Donald J. Trump." Um, okay, so April second, twenty twenty one, statement by Donald J. Trump, forty fifth president of the United States of America. Why is it that every time the 2020 election fraud, in all caps, is discussed, the fake news media, which is again like capitalised, um, consistently states that such charges are baseless, unfounded, unwarranted, etc. Sadly, there was massive fraud in the 2020 presidential election, and many very angry people understand that. With each passing day, and unfortunately for the radical left crazies, more and more facts are coming out. Other than that, happy Easter! <laughs> <laughs> As a radical, as a radical left crazy, I'm very rattled by this, and I really want those facts to not come out. <laughs> more and more facts, they're coming out, yeah. folks. More and more. And I love oh, the end. So that just like incredible drama queen ending. He's like, other than that, happy Easter. It's like just enjoy your web of lies. The man is undefeated. Like they had to ban him from posting. That was the only way they could. He's like, too powerful. That's the only blow anyone's ever been able to land on Donald Trump. Every day when I get up and, and scroll and once, you know, once again, we've managed to get back into talking about being online, but every day I'm like, God, Twitter just sucks. I really want yeah. Trump to come back. It's, it's so way, sad. It's, it's way just, worse. It's so much worse. <sighs> Damn. But yeah, no, the, the stuff about Trump does feel dated. Um, God, there was a really, I wish I had the book in front of me now. It's in my other room, but I've there's a really, oh, you do. Okay. It's you know really... what? Actually, let's just pause this for a sec while I find the quote that I okay. want. Um, all right, here we go. If everyone in the world um, could take introduction to political philosophy, I'm medium certain we would have been in a better situation than we were. But as it was, the language felt wrong, ripped from the past and pasted on the present, its rough edges visible and curling, although I couldn't find a way to pin down getting educated as a bad thing. <laughs> um, so I thought that was a really good um, yeah, yeah, yeah. evocation of what it felt like. Like, I don't know, I remember feeling the same discomfort around, um, you know, organising and resistance and fascism, being like, oh, this feels fake, but I can't really put my finger on why. I, like, I feel like at the time, I completely bought into it. I feel like... Really? Yeah, I feel like in early 2017... Well, I was a lib in early 2017. I literally, okay. like, was just a complete lib and was, like, had, like, no politics whatsoever. Um, and, Interesting. Like, I didn't know that about Bernie you. Sanders was. 
and then like started listening to Charpo and was like, oh, I understand now. Oh, right. Like, so Charpo was your like, political just, education. That was like actually was, yeah. Really? Well, there you go. Um, um, yeah. Never oh, that's let good. it be said that podcasts don't do anything. <laughs> are not effective. Yeah. That's right. And, and imagine that. If you hadn't listened to Charpo, you wouldn't have um, had your political awakening and you would not have started your own podcast. So, yeah, basically. You know. But yeah, no, like, I guess like I, I do remember the time I definitely remember at the time being caught up in it at first and like being like, oh, this is fascism and so on. And there's like, and then like as the, as it went on and as I listened to more episodes of Charpo, basically being more and more like, oh, this is kind of all bullshit actually, hold on. And having that same like sense of it all kind of falling away. But it is, I mean, I, I guess like just in the context of this book, it's weird that she's she's writing in presumably 2020, like maybe 2019, and she's writing about something that happened like a hand like three years ago. She's writing about like 2017, um, and it's she's it's already just like this long forgotten, basically comical historical event. This just like oh, why were we all mad about that? Like it just feels you know it, it yeah like it feels just like the last century or something. Well, it's funny, actually, because speaking of Chapo, I went down a rabbit hole. Um, I think this was around oh, some election, so probably maybe like one of our elections. I mean, maybe it was the 2019 federal election. I was doing a lot of door knock, um, a lot of letterboxing, sorry, a lot of door knocking too. But during my letterboxing, I needed to listen to podcasts and they weren't making enough stories for me like to keep up with my demand. So I just went back and listened to like very back catalogue Chapo. Um, I think I got to um, the episode around Trump's inauguration and you remember there was like the Women's March and yeah. then all of these protests and even Chavo at the time were like kind of not, they were pretty encouraging about it. They were like, well, you know, like it's not perfect, but it's good to see people getting out on the streets and like we hope that energy will kind of carry on and be um, funneled into something useful. Like it was by far the least um Cynical. At least cynical. I've heard them. Yeah, we've definitely come a long way in the cynicism stakes since then, and that was surprising to me when I listened to it. So, you know, maybe that moment because we still had, I guess there was there's still some hope for the future because Bernie was still around. Like that was a different moment. Yeah, like it is true though that iPhone was very shocked. Like it took me a long time to really process how useless all that stuff was, and I was very surprised by like how completely they just kind of faded out or just like if you said to me even just four years ago that like oh four years now you'll be on a podcast talking about how you love donald trump and want him to come back because he's hilarious <laughs> i would have been shocked because yeah. like if, yeah. back then i really was just in the full lib mindset of like i'm so disgusted i can like hardly look at this horrible man yeah now i'm just like he his posts are good and i love them yeah, I don't like. I don't quite know how that happened. Like that has been like really so much of the story of the last few years, and some of it was just the effect of Donald Trump like exposing a lot of this stuff as bullshit. I guess what's. I guess what I'm actually thinking about here is about how this book fake accounts and how Lauren Euler really like has its genesis in the kind of um, Obama era like 2015 um, feminist blog sphere. And how, like, her first big thing that she wrote, the reason that Lauren Euler became viral in the first place was um, an essay dunking on Roxanne Gay, 
um, Roxane Gay's yeah. essay, Bad Feminist. And like... A book of essays. Yeah, book, book of essays, yeah. Um, and just being like, look, like I agree with her politics, but fundamentally cannot write to save her life, um, which is true. And like, but like I really remember reading stuff by Roxane Gay and like some of these other people like back in the pre-Trump era and kind of thinking that, but it was like, it wasn't something you could say. That was really like the only, that kind of like in retrospect is completely suffocating and intolerable, like um, smug liberal feminist blog voice was like, that was the left of politics. And the whole idea totally. was like, this is going to be the future. Like this is going to be like, there was a real assumption on the part of these people, which I think they're still kind of assuming this, that like, oh, we're going to be the future. Like we've unlocked the code and like in the future, everyone's going to write exactly like us. And then like Trump came along and like, I really remember when I like listening to Chapo for the first time and being like, oh, okay. So you can be on the radical left without being totally humorless and smug and like, you can think it's okay to have fun. Um, yeah, like like Lauren Euler like, kind of came out of that sphere and you can see her in her like various things that she's written increasingly, at first being very like kind of polite and reluctant um, when she's writing about Roxanne Gay, but just increasingly being like a much more like vocally, vocal discontent. And it's yeah, really well, like, once yeah. you break the spell and you're like, oh, yeah, exactly. I can actually say things. And, and also because people, you know, you hear from people who are like, oh, thank you for saying that, you know, I feel the same way. Like, I think that was one of the reasons we did our last literary criticism podcast, because we're both um, fed up with (laughs) with books, why books are so bad. But it is like a very freeing um, thing to, to, yeah, to realize. It's it's that, I mean, I was saying this to you last weekend, Matt, um, off air, um, like the overwhelming feeling that I have when I consume any type of culture these days, books mostly, but also a lot of like movies, um, a lot of like stuff online, I guess, even <laughs> discourse and, and politics is like that feeling of the emperor has no clothes where you're like, mm. am I the only one who can see that this is not good? Um, <laughs> and when you, yeah, when you either step out of that yourself or you find someone else who steps out of it, um, that is like a, a quite a powerful intoxicating feeling. Yeah. And because... Because what they've tried to do with Joe Biden is just bring that back, like exactly, just exactly recreate the cultural conditions of 2015. But it, like, it's too late. Like Donald Trump happened. There is no way to make Donald Trump not have happened. And like, you could pretend that Obama was this great president. They're trying really hard to pretend that about Joe Biden, but it's not, I don't think it's working as well. Like, yeah. yeah, it's hard to say, like, I, you know, without having any, I, I have no idea what the cultural and um, political situation is in the US, because all of my media is filtered through several layers of like being online and listening to podcasts. And like, I have no, like, it's either like smug libs who I consume by hearing about them through like, um, ironic leftists. So like, I, I really can't judge. I think but there is, I, yeah, they really, they have given up to a significant degree. Like, I, I, I think there's a sense of, um, like, people have kind of know that the Joe Biden, like, Joe Biden's a senile scarecrow. Um, but there is also a much stronger sense of, no, there's nothing we could do. And so there is definitely a, just like, from what I kind of hear from, like, I, my relatives in America, that's the vibe I get. 
Yeah, well, you know, at least with Trump, like, he was there, right? Like, he was definitely there. Um, there was definitely something going on at all times. And with Biden, if I had to characterize it, I would say it's just characterized by a sort of lack, like an emptiness. And for a lot of people, you know, that's kind of what they want out of politics. They want to not have to think about it. They want it to not be there. But I guess there's still like a huge discontent in the population that it's not Trump at least mirrored that channeled it to some extent. Biden's just trying to repress it. And I think like, you know, historically, we know that's not a very good. Yeah. Um, so it's not an effective strategy. But we've been going for over an hour. So should we wrap it up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think my, my closing thoughts, I think, were just like relating to that. If we are in this kind of neutral zone, this kind of dead space, like where, yeah, Trump kind of ripped off the emperor's clothes. Now they're all just trying to tell us that, like, actually that didn't happen and, like, holding up sheets and being like, no, the emperor's, the emperor's clothes are back again and he, he's he's dressed again. Yeah, like, that emptiness, like, I, I do think this book, Fake Accounts, is kind of just, like, bathing in the emptiness and it's just, like, about the emptiness. And there's a level of, like, look, that's a legitimate subject for interrogation that is part of the human condition and I think that insofar as this book's expressing that aspect of being a person I think it's doing it very well um, and I liked that about it but I also think that mostly I do want to see what Euler does next um, I do I do think that the arts are at some point going to have to say okay like what else what can we do like we can't just and like really that's like the whole world we actually can't just sit here forever like that's not going to be possible. Yeah, I think I, I ended up mainly on that same page. Um, what I said before is basically how I feel like I'm glad it exists. I think it, she did it well. I don't want every book to be like this. Yeah. Um, in fact, I would like there to be no more books like this. I feel yes. like we have come to the end of exploring this particular sort of ironic postmodern meaninglessness and emptiness. Um, it's not a book I ever could have written because there is absolutely no emotional core to it. <laughs> and, I, and, and like I said, I understand why she did that. And um, it's a kind of clever stylistic choice, but I don't necessarily think that should be the, the overarching aim of, of literature. Because um, ultimately, a lot of it is kind of like, it's written in this very sort of I'm cleverer than you tone, which I actually don't mind, but it definitely gets up the noses of a lot of people. And I think that's probably why she chose to write it, write it like that. But yeah, I think at a certain point, it, it beca- it's more daring in a way to kind of go beyond that and try to explore some type of humanity in a more original and meaningful way um which is you know obviously it's cringe to be vulnerable in any way Uh, but you know that doesn't mean we should just never do it in literature Mm. yeah yeah that's literature has to stop worrying about being cringe maybe but it's impossible. Like, yeah, I saw a tweet the other true. day and someone was like, the thing no one tells you about being a writer is how fucking embarrassing it is. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Which yeah. I think, like, maybe we've circled around to what we were just talking about yeah, when we yeah, started yeah. recording. But um, that's 100% it. And I, I, I feel like this is the kind of book that Lauren Euler, anyone who wrote this, would, would never feel at all embarrassed about because it's very impersonal and there's absolutely, there's no or very little emotion on the page. There's nothing that really could be construed as cringe. Yeah, <laughs> but, you maybe. know, you can't go through your whole life avoiding yes. cringe. Maybe this is just what happens when you try and write a book um, without revealing anything about yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's like we were talking about, like, how do I become a famous novelist without being perceived? Like, this yeah, is yeah, how. Yeah. Just write a book that has nothing to do with you. <laughs> That's exactly it. Yeah, the, the yeah. mortifying ordeal of being perceived. 
yeah. or not, yeah. which is funny because it's in a way it's a book that's entirely about being perceived. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, like I think we've reached the end of this as a literary tradition. I don't, but I don't want to be reading another book like this in ten years. Basically, I think we've reached the end of this. Foster Wallace does talk about this as well. He does say, well, maybe like the next generation of authors will have like the, a new kind of sincerity, and maybe that's what they'll do. Um, and like, they don't seem to have done that. In fact, like if this is the next generation of authors. Yeah, God. Um, I, yeah. yeah, I mean, fuck, I don't want to get into rehashing the same stuff as we did last podcast, but I've recently... I'm also starting to realise that Australian literature in particular is really bad. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, I yes. don't want to do like the cultural question. Oh, yeah. But... Australia, uh, great musicians, great actors, uh, great food, shit writers. We can't look, not every country can be good at everything. <laughs> That's it's right. fine. I mean, okay? yeah, like... there, are some, there are some exceptions. Like, I think, for instance, Helen Garner is one of my favourite writers, and I think she, she's um, very good at her craft. But it's like everyone is writing with this. Maybe it is something to do with cultural cringe because if I had to sum it up, I would say it's just a total lack of confidence. Like you yeah, feel yeah, yeah. the author's lack of confidence on the page. Um, obviously, it's extremely fucking hard to write fiction, especially you know, to write a debut novel. But even bad writers in the US and England seem to be doing a bit better than this. I don't know. Well, I probably should stop now. I'm just yeah, sounding yeah. more and more bitter and unhinged. No, you're absolutely right. Like it's... Um... I feel like even, like, a bad English writer has some kind of tradition that they're working in. Um, yeah, that's true. Or, like, and I always think there's about there's about as many African-Americans as there are Australians, and, like, African-Americans are just, like, destroying us in the literary game to such yep. an incredible <laughs> degree. Um, yeah. Or, like, Ireland's, like, a country of... Ireland has about as many people as Queensland, and it's produced just, like, such a huge proportion of, like, the greatest novels of the last hundred years. Some of it's, like, a tradition of it. Some of it's just a lack of anything to write about because there's no there's no natural Australian themes because we're, like, the lucky country. Um, well, I think that no... in itself yeah. can be an interesting theme, like that, that feeling of being isolated, of being, um, I guess you know, your life is taking place on almost a different plane to the rest of the world, like world events are happening very, yeah, yeah, yeah. very far away from you and you're continually sort of um, in the shadow of, of your much bigger neighbours But and, and you have this cultural similarity, but, you know, your lives and, and the conditions of your lives and the political, even the political economic structures of your lives are actually very markedly different. But, yeah, no one, no one so far has explored that well. Yeah, I think Australian writers and, like, publishers and literary people are very are just desperate for there to be Australian fiction and to just make it happen but they're just like trying so hard to be literary according to some like idiot of idea of what it means to be literary that only exists oh. in their heads yeah um that's bad um okay we should stop yeah, we're, we're getting too deep up, into basically. it yeah yes okay um yeah so that's it I guess um yeah, that is to do another being... another lit crit podcast uh if you... accounts. yeah if any of our listeners would like to borrow the book and you're in Brisbane. Matt and I both, I think, did you, I, do you have uh, a physical copy? I do not. Okay. I do you not did your, um, <laughs> your, I, your, uh, your legal downloading. In, an, in a way that will not be revealed on this podcast. Okay. Well, I have a physical copy. I'd be happy That's to good. lend it to anyone. <laughs> yeah. All right. Cool. All right. Okay. All right. Thanks Bye for guys. listening. Thank well, you. Bye.